This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. The future of hydrogen is here, and Biotech is leading the way by disrupting the established centralized hydrogen supply chain with a new highly efficient model of local production hubs. Biotech produces hydrogen close to demand and transports it via high-pressure, high-capacity storage trailers. Fewer truck trips translates to lower transportation costs, lower emissions, and safer roads. It's the first step in making hydrogen more affordable and accessible today. Visit Biotech.us to learn how Biotech makes hydrogen easy. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington, D.C. is Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who's calling in from London. On today's episode of EAH, we are speaking with Michael Liebreich, Chairman and CEO of Liebreich Associates. Michael is an acknowledged thought leader on clean energy, mobility, technology, climate, sustainability, and finance. He is the founder and senior contributor to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, a member of numerous industry, governmental, and multilateral advisory boards, an angel investor, a former member of the Board of Transportation for London, and an advisor to the UK Board of Trade. It's great to have Michael with us on the show, and we are excited to share our conversation with him with our listeners. But before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at, at about hydrogen. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, guys. Uh, well, this is being recorded post-interview, and we know it was a uh, lengthy conversation with our guests, so we'll do a very quick, what we'll call the lightning round of how you're doing, uh, and then we'll uh, give some context and jump right into it. Patrick, your hair looks fantastic today. How are you doing? Yours looks great, too. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. I agree. Yeah, doing good. Doing good. As we start to emerge into what I hope is springtime. And uh, it's going to be a big year for big year continuing for hydrogen. All right. Well, that's good. What about you? Uh, I'm doing great, Patrick. I am going to do my taxes today. So I've got a few calls into Mosac Fonseca that I'm planning to make. And then, uh, you know, we'll see where it goes from there. How about you, Chris? Did you guys, did you guys decide to go to a hairdresser on the same day? Because you're both looking very trim. You both look like you've, you know, had, had a nice job done. Is this like end of Q1 taxes, haircut kind of thing? Is that a DC vibe? Something we're, we're like that, yeah. Again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your retreat now that the winter's over you're allowed back out again <laughs> that's right that's right well chris i know you wanted to set some context around this interview and i know we got as i mentioned quite a bit of time with michael so uh i'll turn it over to you to, to uh proceed with that sure so uh this particular episode is a little bit different to some of the others um michael liebrick as many people will know is a is quite a wide spoken commentator on a whole range of different energy technologies um including on hydrogen um this episode we're going to start with a focus on michael's take on demand side applications for hydrogen um and we're going to talk about something called the hydrogen ladder initially which is a concept that Michael, with various others, including Paul Martin and people, have put together, which represents their take on how uh, hydrogen demand should be prioritized at the kind of macro level. 
um, you know, sort of broad framing of thinking. Um, and then from that initial discussion around the ladder, we move into the sort of supply side and Michael's view on uh, the supply of hydrogen and his views on sort of blue versus green, where Michael has been uh, public in saying he does see a role for blue, albeit um, under very constrained uh, conditions. So it, it's it's a very broad conversation. It's a long conversation. It's it's a really interesting uh, opportunity, I think, for listeners to, to kind of get a feel for a more limited view for hydrogen in some ways in the energy system. I think that's probably a fair commentary. But equally, there's some quite interesting uh, views and perspectives on why he believes hydrogen is more limited. And part of that we'll get into in the postscript in terms of why Michael thinks other technologies will actually be more advanced and be more suitable. Um, and I think that's just useful to bear in mind when you're listening to the episode is, you know, if if not hydrogen, what else is Michael proposing instead? And I think that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Um, and we'll obviously cover it in the postscript. Well said. Well said. Well, let's jump right into it, guys. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. And I think uh, most of our listeners probably don't need an introduction for you, but some of them may. So uh, if I could ask you to uh, introduce yourself and give us a little bit of uh, background about yourself, that would be fantastic. Certainly. So my name is Michael Liebreich. I run Liebreich Associates, which is essentially the vehicle through which I do speaking, advisory work. I also do some angel investing. I've created a platform called Ecopragma Capital where I'm uh, matching investment opportunities with investors. I have my own podcast, which I'm going to plug, if that's okay, which is called Cleaning Up, Leadership in an Age of Climate Change. And I have amazing speakers, uh, and it's all great fun. Uh, so I think that's the portfolio. Oh, and I'm probably po- possibly most famous for having launched and created New Energy Finance, which I sold to Bloomberg. It's now Bloomberg NEF and, uh, and, a, and a pretty well-respected um, source of information, I am told. <laughs> well, we are going to circle back to that, I assure you, Michael. So uh, on that front, though, let's let's dive right into the hydrogen sector. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the hydrogen ladder, what it is, what it uh, what it helps to structure and, and how it how it's uh, formatted? Yeah, certainly. So the hydrogen ladder was a piece of work that I did uh, last year. And what it does is it creates a kind of pecking order of where I think hydrogen is going to end up being used in the future net zero economy and where I think it's very unlikely to be used. So the ladder at the top, you've got those areas which are going to require uh, clean hydrogen of whatever sort. We'll get onto that, no doubt. And at the bottom, you've got things that are really kind of stupid to do with hydrogen. Um, The background is that uh, every 20 years, hydrogen goes through this period of extraordinary hype. We saw it in in the 80s. We saw it again around the turn of the millennium. Uh, and, and now, uh, of course, hydrogen is, um, is having another moment in the sun, as it were. And, um, but there's a lot of misunderstanding about what hydrogen is good for, how hard it is to handle or easy, if you like. The thermodynamics of making, uh, separating hydrogen because it doesn't occur in nature. Um, the maintenance costs of equipment that uses hydrogen and, and so on. So I tried to summarize all of those different factors, including things like human behavior, um, and, um, and pull that together in one graphic, which is not necessarily 100% right. I wouldn't claim that. But what I was trying to do was to create a framework for discussion. And in a sense, 
The fact that so many people talk about the hydrogen ladder means that it has already won, because that means that the framework of things that are kind of smarter and less smart to do with hydrogen is being absorbed into the body politic, into the discussion. And so whether everybody agrees exactly with my D and my C and my F and my A and my B and so on, um, that doesn't really matter so much as the fact that we're having a discussion and there are some you know, vital things that we need to do and some things that really, frankly, there are other solutions that can do better. So, I mean, the thing that's interesting about the ladder and in some ways is kind of interesting about the general hydrogen story is that we've never really seen one done for a lot of clean technologies and we probably should do, right? There isn't a battery ladder, for example, or others. And it'd be quite, yeah, and probably quite helpful for policymakers to think about some of this in this way. Um, but the ladder's also evolved. You know, you talk about the fact that this is version four. So, you know, you've gone through them and, and things have changed. So, for example, we were just looking earlier, aviation has dropped down between version two and four. Coastal and inland vessels have gone up. Long-term power storage has gone up, but uh, things like long-distance trucks have split. So it does seem to be iterative and evolving. And I wonder how much of that evolution is, as you say, to do with technology and how much of that is to do with people. Because I think that was really interesting that you sort of you highlighted here. It's not just about what does the technology do. It's about what do we actually think people are going to build and what actually do we think from a user perspective is going to be the most convenient solutions for transition. So how much of an evolution do you see still to come with the ladder? So the, it's been really an interesting experience uh, because it really is crowdsourced in some ways. I mean, it's clearly, you know, I'm the keeper of it. And uh, certainly the early versions were very much my opinion and my attempt to spur debate. But what I tried to do very quickly was to respond to debate. And there's one area in particular. I would say there's two areas in which it's sort of evolved. One, which is that I'm not a particularly knowledgeable chemist. And so, you know, I can talk about, uh, you know, methanation or methanol or hydrocracking or, or, or all sorts of things. But I don't, I have never, you know, designed those plants. And I very quickly found that people who had, started to interact with me and, and I learned an enormous amount and I therefore tweaked you know, a number of things. The other area that it definitely evolved was in definitions and wordings. So the, you, know, you can talk about, let's say, um, off-road vehicles, right? And then half the people understand that what I really meant was a road grader or a, a forestry vehicle. The other half thought that I meant, um, you know, a, a sort of uh, a quad bike or a, you know, sort of, you know, a, a Land Rover going off. And doing those, are, those are the Americans uh, listening right. in on that one, Mike. <laughs> so what I, but what I did then, if I, you know, learned a lot about the sectors that people work in and the, the terminology they use. So that's now called non-road mobile machinery, which is very specific. And it kind of matches then onto, S, you know, SIC codes and all those sorts of things. I think in that evolution to be quite honest, there's been much less of me thinking, well, hang on a second, I've learned so much, I now think that there's been this tremendous breakthrough and so, you know, aviation or some, some solution has moved up or down. I, I'm fairly set. I mean, the reason I produced the ladder was really to encapsulate, I mean, I'm not even going to say 20 years, I could even be, you know, I could even be, you know, I could even say 40 years of knowledge because it starts with physics. And it starts with then, you know, there's some physics I did at high school or at school, then the thermodynamics from Cambridge, then the finance, and then the, and the microeconomics I did in my first job, which is all about learning curves. And I tried to encapsulate it all. And, you know, I am open to learning, but I do think I've thought pretty hard about most of the segments that are covered in the ladder. And, and I just, before we just go too much further, I do think we should talk about the A level on the ladder, the top, you know, the, the top rung. 
because that is different from anything else on the ladder in that those are the areas where hydrogen is currently used, of which, as I'm sure everybody, you know, everybody on this, uh, uh, in this conversation, but probably a lot of the audience will know, the vast, vast majority is grey hydrogen produced from fossil fuels, mainly from gas and coal. So the, the, the rung A on the ladder, what I'm saying is we absolutely have to have clean hydrogen for that rung. And that rung is um, uh, currently uh, those use cases currently account for about 2% of global emissions. So, you know, that, that for me, that's a starting point to try to refocus people always on that top rung because people love to go and talk about all these other wonderful things, you know, hydrogen aeroplanes and hydrogen scooters and hydrogen boilers and hydrogen uh, storage for the grid. And so it's like, well, hang on a second. If you can't solve the top rung, why, I don't think you've really earned the right to, dis, to debate those other things because we've got a currently we've got a you know, hydrogen is actually hydrogen is an emission problem right now. Right. So before we go on to talk about it as an emission solution, we kind of need to address the problem pieces of interest. And for those who, uh, you know, this is a, a podcast, so they probably don't have the uh, listeners don't have the ladder in front of them. But that top rung. And we'll put it, we'll obviously have a link in the show notes, but that top rung, just for purposes of understanding kind of how we're looking at this, is those are non, what you wouldn't consider, those are not energy sector applications, right? So just just to be clear, you know, those are things like fertilizer, uh, hydrocracking, things like that, right? So that's right. So the top, the top run is fertilizer, the big ones are fertilizer, hydrocracking, methanol, desulfurization. I also put hydrogenation in there because we do need it. It's mainly in the food industry, also in some sort of uh, some some uh, plastics processing and so on. And those are the things. Now, some of those will fall away as we move towards net zero, right? We will not be doing uh, as much um, uh, hydro cracking. Now, we'll do some because we'll still need uh, some. It's used in plastics as well. But we also, hopefully, uh, another one that might fall away is fertilizer, where we use this ble- very blunt instrument of the Harbour Bosch process. And actually, we could be much, much more targeted in our use of fertilizer. And we can also be, mu- we could, there are novel ways of producing, and there's a lot of research there. Um, so it could be that that one falls away. But, you know, the fertilizer industry is so huge that even in the best of worlds, it is going to be decades and decades before fertilizer and hydrocracking and desulfurization fall away. So we have got a hydrogen uh, decarbonization problem that we need to address. So Michael, maybe as a quick follow on to that, because I think I think you hit the nail on the head that, you know, as we're sitting here talking about this, as many of the people listening to us today are contemplating in their day to day work, they're thinking about, you know, hydrogen as an emissions, uh, a mechanism to re- reduce our emissions going forward. Uh, one of the sensitivities that immediately jumps out when I think about these spaces and that objective is, you know, regionally, when we talk about different constraints of availability to energy or a different kind of grid designs, et cetera, et cetera, you know, does, how does the ladder change as we move to specific regions? And what, what is your view around what moves around, maybe? Right. So th- that's a really important point, because the ladder the other thing that the ladder is doing subliminally, apart from saying there are some smarter use cases and some stupider ones, what it's also doing is moving the debate to the demand side very firmly, right? Because there's a lot of discussion. It's wonderful, you know, politicians love to, you know, to go and visit hydrogen production projects and we can talk about green hydrogen and, and so on. But actually, 
Um, it's really important that we understand what is the what's the uptake going to look like. And if you look at, for instance, the EU hydrogen strategy, it is you know it's very big on supply, it's fairly big on distribution, but it's almost silent on uptake. And so, you know, it's easy to postulate all of these. You know, I use the uh, example of a, a Swiss army knife, you know, and this is the kind of prevailing view of a lot of people is, well, hydrogen will win everywhere because it does everything, just like a Swiss army knife. And of course, the problem with the Swiss army knife analogy is it's too good, right? Because the fact is we don't use a Swiss army knife to cut our hair or to prune the trees in our garden. Although, of course, you could. You just don't. There's something cheaper, better, more convenient uh, that does those things. And so all of these policies that are silent on how do you actually get mass uptake in use cases, um, I wanted to sort of shift the debate over to that demand side. And I also wanted to challenge the idea that um, because hydrogen can do everything, that it therefore will. And there's a very lazy sort of uh, trope out there, which is that, you know, you will do hydrogen in transportation because you'll do it in heating and you'll do it in heating because you'll do it in transportation and you'll do it in, you know, in each of those cases because you can do long-term storage. And so it'll sort of somehow be pervasive and therefore, which is not the way things work. What actually happens is that new technologies, great example would be digitization, had to win case by case by case. And in some cases, digitization just didn't win. We still read books. We still give out business cards there's lots of, um, of of examples, you know. So I I think this kind of use case by use case thinking is one of the things that I was trying to achieve. So now you've jumped to the supply side. In a sense, what you're saying is, is it possible that there are geographies where the supply is so, you know, prevalent that it would move things up, or so difficult that it might move things down? Well, and even even a step before that, does the type of hydrogen change if you're looking at different markets? Because that was, I think, where we wanted to go next, which was the ladder is a great way of framing the debate and discussion around the demand side. But actually, you know, assuming there are accepted use cases and applications for it, given the resources prevailing in different markets, an abundance of solar or wind or an abundance of hydrocarbons, does that create some markets where a blue versus green approach is more interesting and where, again, if hydrogen of a blue or green or combination is abundant, more technologies are applicable, more use cases make sense than in markets where there's a constraint on both? I think the answer is yes, but it's at the margin. So as an example, if the only conceivable answer is green hydrogen, then heating becomes absolutely bonkers because green hydrogen goes via electricity, right? And if you've got that electricity, you stick it in a heat pump and there is absolutely nothing that a hydrogen boiler offers to you other than a dramatic reduction in efficiency, if, on the other hand, you're using brown, uh, sorry, blue, uh, blue hydrogen, so uh, hydrogen from natural gas with the carbon removed and sequestered, then you could think of it as being, well, it's kind of just like normal gas heating, but a bit more expensive because you have to take the CO2 out. So there are some interactions, but I think they're relatively modest. And in particular, it would be kind of weird to, for me to jump from, you know, well, broadly, we agree with the ladder, but it might, you know, now let's tweak it because of availability without a discussion about transport costs. Because, you know, there is also, you know, we're hearing stories in the news about how um, we're going to be powering JCB. I, I actually, I, the, the JCBs, the diggers are fairly high up. There are 
um, they're actually a, a B on this latest version of the ladder. You know, whether they should be a B or a C, I don't know. It's not a bad use case. But there are these news stories about how we're going to be powering them with hydrogen from Australia, from Fortescue Industries. Andrew Forrest is going to do this deal and, and he's going to, and you know, the problem there is you've got hydrogen from Australia transporting it to the UK is going to cost something like $5 per kilo against the hydrogen cost of one or $2, right? So you're talking about, you're going to increase the cost of your hydrogen by a factor of you know, somewhere between you know, three, four, five, six, seven times. And it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. There is nothing about whether it's blue, whether it's green, whether it's pink, whether it's polka dot. You're not going to be bringing in hydrogen from Australia to use in the UK. The transport costs are prohibitive. You can bring in hydrogen via pipelines. It's possible from the Gulf or from North Africa. There we could have a discussion. But from Australia, forget it. So, Michael, you know, I think uh, I think it's fair to say that some some people might have a, a vision of you as a, as a skeptic, but I think I think from what we're talking about, we're we're actually getting more towards our energy system design as a whole, and 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 in that in that spirit, you know, I suppose the question is, as you kind of go through the ordering and the you know the areas where it makes sense and and, and how you described it just now, even. What are the the alternative solutions, you know, and, and what are we expecting or what needs to be true on the other side here where we start to see certain things move down rather than up? Yeah, so one of the things that I did with the ladder is I've produced a version where I sort of color it differently for the different competing technologies because, um, as I say, level A is all the stuff that you kind of have to use clean hydrogen because otherwise you use dirty hydrogen, right? But then you get into a zone um, around the, the level B, what you've got is things like shipping. You've got those off-road vehicles uh, or you know, uh, non-mobile, what is it? Uh, non-road mobile machinery type stuff. Um, you've got steel. You've got long-term storage. And then the question is, what might be the alternatives for those? Um, and and for, for quite a few of them, aviation, shipping, the, the closest competitor is pro- clean competitor, is probably biofuels of some sort. But then when you get down to the lower rungs, the reason why I'm so bearish on the lower rungs for hydro- as, as um, markets for hydrogen is that the competition is with electrification. Plug the thing in either directly or use a battery and uh, electrification is just going to win. And there was this marvelous advertisement for Heineken in the 1970s and 80s, and it was it was... Uh, Heineken reaches, uh, refreshes the parts other beers cannot reach. And, you know, I think you know, people talk about hydrogen as champagne. No, 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 no. I think that hydrogen is actually Heineken because it's going to decarbonize the parts that electricity cannot reach. As soon as you can do something with electricity, it is not just that it's more efficient. You know, people accuse me of being obsessed with thermodynamic efficiency. No, it's also more convenient, safer, and lower maintenance, critically lower maintenance, because there are no moving parts or much fewer, far fewer moving parts. And it's just a simpler and better solution. So if you look at, for instance, um, the very small number of hydrogen car models that are out there on the market, they're just worse cars than electric cars. They've got less space. They've got higher maintenance costs. They've got hydrogen tanks, which means that, you know, you, you've got to sort of Essentially, armor them and 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 carry out a whole load of weight with you, and they're just and their acceleration is just is just terrible. Um, so they're just worse cars. 
as well as being more expensive at the moment and probably forever. The same with buses, same with so many of the solutions down at the bottom, even a, a train. I mean, if you can electrify track for a train, or frankly, even if you can electrify parts of it, right, and then carry a battery on the train, it's just a better train. It's a better solution. And it's going to be cheaper to run, cheaper to maintain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the competition for the bottom, you know, three, four rungs of the ladder is electrification and batteries. Um, so, and I think- you know, then you get into discussions about, well, how much lithium is that going to require or rare earths or so on? And it's not going to be trivial, absolutely clearly. But on the other hand, uh, you know, the advantages are so substantial. To my mind, it's, it's going to be a no-brainer. But I think just pushing on that, because I think one of the things that we were discussing before, which was behind the question, was uh, what assumptions do we have to make about other technologies for that to happen, right? So if I am going to effectively electrify everything, and then I'm going to use hydrogen as the Heineken, to use your example, what assumptions do I have to make around batteries, around the availability of different you know, technologies or platforms, around cost, you know, because you, you talked about sort of all that different experience. And, you know, we said so we come onto your BNEF experience where we're, we're getting into it now. But, you know, what is it that you are assuming will happen to those other clean energy transitions that will allow them effectively to electrify all of those areas so that you won't need to or in your view, you won't go down that hydrogen route? Because I think that's where some of this debate comes in as people go today, we can see a way that hydrogen could do this. And the question is, what would have to happen to electrify it instead of using hydrogen as an option? Well, I mean, it's interesting that you say today we can see that hydrogen could do this. Of course, you know, um, that's, a, that's a contentious statement in my book because, of course, hydrogen theoretically is the Swiss army knife. But the fact is we don't see hydrogen doing, you know, lots of the things that it, that it you know, that it could sort of in a lab or in, the, in theory do. The, the, the thing about electrification and batteries is that it, it just requires scaling of just, I'm giving sort of air quotes for your listeners who can't see that, it just requires scaling of industries that are already incredibly substantial, namely the electrical grid, the electricity industry, and of course also the battery industry. Um, it requires substantial scaling of the bat, particularly the battery industry. We're talking about, you know, a, a, an order of magnitude, maybe even one and a half orders of magnitude scaling of that, um, and the associated mineral extraction, right? But these are things that we've done repeatedly throughout human history. We've scaled, you know, mineral extractions of various, of, of multiple sorts, multiple times, and the electrical system already exists. And so, you know, there's a whole raft of people out there on Twitter who believe that you couldn't possibly electrify the vehicles in the UK because the grid will fall over. But that's completely news to National Grid, who actually run the grid. And you can look at the scenarios that they've put out for how we would do it. And of course, you know, you have to have smart charging, for instance. So there's another uh, constraint or another thing that has to happen. We have to have smart charging because if everybody gets home at seven o'clock in the evening, plugs in the car and also checks Facebook and grabs a beer from the fridge so that you've got the fridge door opens and that starts wearing and then they probably go to the bathroom and flush the loo and then all of the water pumps. If all of that electrical demand hits at at 7 o'clock in the evening, we've got a problem. But with smart charging, so it's spread out over, you know, the night and also the week and, you know, different locations so on, then it's absolutely doable. And, And every single model analysis shows that it's absolutely doable. So I have great concern about the extractive industries, but in a sense, I have 
no more concern than I would for any other. I mean, you know, uh, uh, we, we've got a problem with, for instance, um, ESG performance of the clothes industry. And, you know, we work to try to make sure that there isn't child labor in Bangladesh making our T-shirts. And we kind of, I won't say we know how to do that. When we do know, we know how to, uh, how to address the issue. We don't know how to resolve it 100%. But we need to think a lot harder about ESG in the mining industry than we are currently thinking. That, I see that as being probably the most critical concern area. Other than that, I think it's a no-brainer that we're going to go to you know, massive electrification. By the way, we're going to go to um, electrification of heat is enormously helpful for this transition because it starts to give you a lot more, it's much easier to store heat than it is to store electrons. So once we all move to these marvelous, you know, heat pumps and so on, we can actually do a lot more smoothing and smart charging and smart, you know, not, not just in the context of vehicles, but in the context of other uh, use cases. But I think these are all, you know, we, we also have 28 years till 2050. So, you know, there's a, an enormous amount of the discussion it seems to be predicated on the idea that we make one decision today and are supposed to have executed it by next year. And that's just also not the case. So the other piece of um, why I think, you know, why I think electrification wins the lower rungs of the ladder is the experience curve. You know, batteries is a single, you know, most of the value add is in the material science and we're going to get really, really good at it over time. Um, and the microeconomics of having very few moving parts, you mainly using solid state, will always beat the microeconomics of anything that's got, you know, pumping and moving fluids around and eliminating water and dealing with this temperature and that temperature, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and I, and I think I don't want to put words into Chris's mouth. That's always a dangerous uh, endeavor, but. Uh, I think you're, you're, you're getting to, I think, what Chris was driving at. I think you, I think you've made a strong case for the supply side of electrification and that perhaps some of the concerns are overblown. But I suppose you said something interesting early on in that comment, in that answer where you were saying, uh, that hydrogen is not doing today some of the things that people think it can do today. Well, I, just to play devil's advocate here, Michael, I would say that batteries are not doing today a lot of the things that people on the demand side, that technology as you scale up. So let's talk about heavy transport class eight trucks, right? As you scale up lithium ion batteries today, it becomes a six ton battery in a class eight truck. You're basically hauling around a big battery. And, and you know, to your point about hauling around hydrogen tanks being heavy, it's quite a more severe problem on the battery side. That's a, that's a single example. I realize that, but okay. But let me but let me deal with that example. There's this again. It's a, this this idea that you know, if the moment you do a class A truck, you do a forty ton truck. You have this vast battery, which makes it completely. You know, it's a third. I think somebody from Kenworth recently did something with it because they've of course got a hydrogen truck uh, program, which they're promoting very heavily. And he said, if you did this with a battery, you would lose one third of the payload. And, you know, there's just so much wrong with that statement. When you do a battery truck, you take out the engine, you take out the gearbox, you take out the differential, you take out the fuel system, you take out the exhaust system, you take out the vibration management system. So, yes, you're adding some weight, but the other, you know, the batteries, we're not talking lead acid batteries, we're talking lithium iron. And we really ought to be talking next generation lithium iron, which is already, I mean, we've already seen a doubling of the 
uh, energy density. Most, most people don't know this. We've doubled the energy density of lithium-ion batteries in the last decade. It's not just that the cost has come down, that the energy density has doubled and the number of cycles that you can do before the battery reaches anything like end of life has gone up by 10x, right? So that truck, which is, you know, if you, if you look at a 500-mile, 40-ton truck, then it's going to be a couple of tons heavier than its fossil fuel equivalent, a couple of tons, right? So that's not nothing, right? I get it. Um, although it is a couple of tons that can be, you know, powered and driven around using clean electricity rather than dirty fossils. So there is that. But also, how many trucks on the road, if you did a census, how many of them are limited by weight rather than by volume, right? Because a lot of the trucks on our road are not limited by weight. They're actually driving around, you know, all of those Amazon boxes that are largely air, which we've all unpacked, where you get this huge box and all it's got in it is, is two rolls of masking tape. Um, and, um, and so I think, you know, we've got to be cold and analytical about this. And, you know, you also have in Europe, for instance, after I think it's four or four and a half hours driving, a driver has to stop for 45 minutes, which is long enough to charge that battery if you've got the right infrastructure in place. And it's only electrical engineering. It's a transmission grid connection. Uh, you know, it, it's just not such a problem. Now, if you compare, on the other hand, the hydrogen solution, right, you've got major truck manufacturers, Daimler and Volvo, saying, oh, well, they think the answer is going to be liquid hydrogen. Now, I don't know about you, but I've talked to people who handle liquid hydrogen in labs and the idea, they just, they just laugh at the idea of trucks driving around with, with liquid hydrogen at minus 253 and off-gassing and doing all sorts of weird and funky things. And then that truck, perhaps having to go into a service center to have, you know, some, you know, to have its brakes adjusted or whatever and sitting there with liquid hydrogen on board. I mean, good luck with that. Oh, sure. Look, I mean, I think we can, you know, I think it's with any use case, it's always difficult to go too far down the debate, you know, and I think to some extent, given the time we've got, probably not worth going too far down. I mean, take, take for example, a battery truck in the UK by Tesco's that came out today. Chris, I'm going to be robust here. Why is it? Because if we're saying you've got to decide this use case by use case, and we've all got all of the cumulative knowledge and experience, microeconomics, thermodynamics, physics, human behavior, we've got, you know, just, you know, you can say, well, we shouldn't go too far into it, you know, but I think we, that's, we can that's, do that. We can do that. Let's do that then. OK, take the latest 44 ton battery electric truck in the UK that was trialed. Its distance is 110 kilometers and requires a one megawatt grid connection. The biggest grid connection on any UK major motorway is three megawatt, which is on the M25 as a service station. So trying to get three megawatt of grid on a motorway today for someone who did EV charging knows a lot of people in the space is extremely difficult. And that's just the three trucks. And if you look at what you can buy in Europe today on the fuel cell truck side on compressed gas, not liquid, you can get vehicles with a 200 to 300 mile plus range, depending on configuration, at a lower weight. And therefore, you do carry more. Now, your point around weight versus volume is a good one. We work in the drinks industry. The drinks industry is very weight sensitive. They do maximize the weight. And it is a big problem because every additional ton you can't carry, every additional pound you can't carry, it's another truck, it's another driver, it's another route, it's more congestion. So this is a real issue. It's not a clean shot at all. So have we built truck chargers in the UK yet? The answer is, of course not. But, you know, that's really why we have to have that detailed debate, right? Because the more that we're confused about what the outcome, the more we, the more we kid ourselves about the outcomes, 
um, the more the, the less we build, right? And I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll come back to the drinks industry in a second. Um, you know, I was on the board of transport for London, and we had at one point electrified, I think, one or two routes, and I was pushing very hard for electric buses. And this was the time when you know there came a point where London had more electric buses than anywhere in Europe. It had a hundred of them. And Shenzhen had 16,500. And I was trying to, from my position on the um, sustainability panel of the board, to say, let's get on with it. The answer is electrification. You don't have, to your point, you don't have the charging in all of the depots in London, but that is a solvable problem. That is, a, that is an electrical engineering problem. We are also, as Transport for London, we have lots of actually medium voltage um, power that goes along the, the rail wire, the over, overland, overground and uh, underground rail. So we could actually have really, really accelerated the electrification of buses. But man said, no, 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 we, it might, the answer might be hydrogen. So we should effectively do some EU funded hydrogen plan and run some buses for three years or five years and gather data and do nothing because they were basically fundamentally the person, in, well, the, some of the people involved were also incredibly lazy. So we did nothing, and now we're not the world leader, um, and and it's a great shame. It's an opportunity, but it was hydrogen that was used as the decoy. So I mean, it's a pretty straightforward question in this case, Michael. So this is uh, you know, what role do you see for blue hydrogen in the energy transition? I mean, we've talked about batteries versus hydrogen, electrification versus hydrogen, so to speak. But what do you, in terms of within the hydrogen sector itself, what role do you see for blue hydrogen? The way I've described it is that I've made my peace with blue hydrogen. In an ideal world, it would be lovely if we could just use renewable electricity to make hydrogen and everything would be green. The problem is if you go back to the ladder, the famous ladder, that top rung of the ladder, so the current uses of dirty hydrogen, if you said, right, here's the plan, let's just make that green. Let's just make green hydrogen for that rung. That would require every single wind farm and every single solar farm and solar panel built to date over the last 20 years, and then 50% again. So in other words, the entire renewable sector as it stands today, it's been an incredible you know, growth rate and it's, and, it, and it's you know, reached a scale which has disrupted all the electricity markets and so on. All of that, and then 50% again, would be required just for the top rung of the ladder. So you've not done steel or long-term storage or shipping or aviation, let alone all of the things that Chris wants to do with trucks and with cars and with scooters and with taxis and with buses and all the other things. So if you go down to the, the rung B of the ladder, which does include long-term storage and steel and a few other things, it starts to really expand out. So now you get to things like five times the existing renewable energy sector to serve just rungs A and B, just the things that really make sense where electrification doesn't actually work and therefore we're going to have to have some other solution. We're talking about five renewable industry uh, uh, sectors as they currently stand. And don't forget, we need to do that at the same time as we electrify heating and electrify industrial heating and a whole bunch of other things. Also, hopefully, presumably, with a large amount of renewable electricity. And that some of this discussion is such poor, such low grade because there's this, you know, discussion about how terrible the supply chain will be of batteries, but then the assumption that the supply chain of solar panels or of wind can be kind of grown by a factor of 10 overnight. And, you know, I'm a mechanical engineer at heart. 
This stuff is hard. This stuff takes years and it takes decades to grow supply chains and to do it in a way where you are. So, for instance, if you want to consult with indigenous peoples before opening a mine, you want to do these things right. You want to make sure you're not using child labor. Uh, you want to make sure that you're doing things safely. Then these things take time. And we don't have time. We don't have decades and decades. So I, that's why I think that we are not going to, we're not even going to decarbonize the top rung of the, the ladder unless we're, you know, unless we can make our peace with blue hydrogen. But what I would say, as, and I've been very clear about this, is that that only works if the blue hydrogen is done right. And I'm again doing air quotes, right? And done right means you've got to have very high capture of the CO2 and very low, vanishingly low emissions of methane to a level which the physics and the engineering can absolutely deliver, but the regulatory environments and the financing, therefore, which responds to that at present are not delivering, right? And so there's a lot of work to be done. So I don't think that that means that we should be saying, so blue hydrogen can never be done right because it's never been you know, done right so far, just like we don't have, you know, megawatt scale uh, chargers for trucks yet because we've never bothered to build them and never needed to. Um, we don't currently have blue hydrogen done right, but it can be done right. And I think that we owe it to, you know, all of the stakeholders that we purport to represent and to care about to do it right. It's just an interesting one. So if you speak to Paul Martin, who obviously I know you do talk to quite a bit. I mean, Paul, whenever I've spoken to him, has said, you know, his view is you should just basically push for green hydrogen instead of blue. And if you have to use natural gas in the short term, so be it. It's better than locking in blue in the long term. Now, that's that's an opinion. But it's it was quite an interesting one. And I wonder in the context of Ukraine at the moment, where you're seeing a massive European move away from Russian natural gas and potentially looking at coal, frankly, as the alternative, whether you might sort of say, rather than taking a 20, 25% um, you know, conversion loss and taking natural gas and making it into blue hydrogen is actually the answer for some of these European markets realistically in the next 10 years to say, given the scale and the timeline of moving away from Russian gas and the alternative of relying on coal, maybe you kind of take Paul Martin's deep devil, which is you use natural gas as it is for that little bit longer in Europe, phase out coal, and actually you know, for that top rung, as you say, you go for green rather than blue. Just, you know, that's a, you know, that is another view I've heard. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so I I think the situation in Ukraine, we've got to make sure, so short term, the humanitarian situation trumps everything else, everything else, frankly, including things like emissions from coal, including, I'm afraid, air quality from biomass. You know, it's, this is such a grave situation so urgent and so so overwhelmingly large um but i don't think we want to be making decisions in the short term that affect long-term outcomes i mean i don't think i don't think that you should say because of ukraine never do blue hydrogen because it will always be better to do gas right i think that what we should separate what we're going to do you know hopefully by christmas next year and over the next two or three years uh, from where we're going to end up in a decade 15 years 20 years where hopefully the silver lining of this appalling situation is that we will actually accelerate clean solutions. So we'll get off, you know, uh, uh, not just coal, but also gas. Um, Paul makes a very interesting and important point, which is even in that 15, 20 year timeline, there may be situations where it's better to have 
a couple of percent of the time just use natural gas unabated rather than and then you know buy with the money saved versus a hundred percent clean solution maybe you buy offsets or build offsets or capture or do something else i'm not against that thinking because i don't want to worry about the last two percent or five percent and destroy our ability to act on either the urgent situation in ukraine or the urgent situation slightly less urgent but still urgent situation of climate change um I, I think that, um, you know, I, and I, I should also say that I, I love Paul and he's one of the people who's taught me most about the kind of chemistry of some of the things on the ladder. But I think that I've probably got more faith in the ability of certainly democratic countries to regulate their oil and gas sectors. I think, you know, I perhaps I've, in, I've interacted more with the ones in Europe and maybe he's got more experience from the US where they really do own the political system to a different extent. But, you know, we have seen things like the Piper Alpha disaster where there was this terrible fire on an offshore rig. And we have seen the combination of the industry and the regulator dramatically uh, introduce a step change in regulation and in safety uh, assurance. So I think that there's, I think it's possible to be optimistic about the oil and gas industry's ability to produce blue hydrogen cleanly, at least in well-regulated, transparent countries. If the will is there, it can be done. Does that mean that I think that producing blue hydrogen in, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going to offend, you know, I'm going to sound like Borat, you know, in, in Kazakhstan. Is that a good idea? Is that going to be a smart thing to do, to buy hydrogen from, you know, some, you know, republics where, there is no regulatory environment that will actually make sure it's done right. No, I don't think we should be doing that. So that's why I say I'm making my piece, but it is conditional on doing the blue hydrogen right. Yeah, and I think, you know, the point on Ukraine is absolutely right. I mean, you you have to, all things here at at this point in time, and, you know, obviously we're both living in the UK, Michael really is the humanitarian piece, which is pretty hideous. Uh, One of my colleagues did make a good point, which was that when faced with a similar energy catastrophe linked to a humanitarian crisis in Japan, when Fukushima happened, the country collectively was willing to suffer um, significant deprivation and shortages of power to turn off other nuclear plants, because there was a perceived national need that that was the right thing to do. And the comment made was that we haven't yet seen in Europe that willingness yet to turn off a lot of sources of gas demand or to bring down um, let alone even actually, frankly, stop the purchases in a lot of central uh, European economies yet today. So Germany being the obvious one. Um, and I guess it, I almost wanted to finish with that as a tie in together. We've spoken a lot about different parts of the ladder. But one of the key things you've talked about is behavioral change. And you made the comment with regards to digitalization, right? People have to want to change for these things to work. So in some ways, for a lot of the transition to happen and for the way you think about hydrogen to play out, we presumably need the people to come with us and do you think you know based on the experience you have that you're seeing enough comfort or evidence that people in the western world will make the level of sacrifices or say western world but could be even broader make the sacrifices necessary to have this sort of electrification type solution that we want to deploy blue hydrogen in a sensible and responsible way alongside green where appropriate you know or are we still a long way to go before there is that buy-in for that pathway well, so I just want to go back to the beginning of your question about sort of Ukraine and behavior change. Um, I actually think that the people, the emotional response by the people is way ahead of the politicians in terms of what they would be prepared to put up with. 
I think that right now politicians are still saying, oh, we can't ask people to lower the thermostat because people don't want to be one degree um, uh, cooler uh, just because of the Ukrainians. And I think that's nonsense. I think people are um, certainly ready for, you know, some, you know, maybe not swinging sacrifices. Uh, there's also a whole area of stuff that we're straying away from hydrogen, but where people could just, you know, set up their boilers correctly so that they are actually condensing and they save energy with absolutely no change to comfort. And there's no debate to that, which is very frustrating. I do think that just on Ukraine, final point is that, uh, and I will link it back to hydrogen, I do see people using Ukraine as an excuse to promote their favoured solutions. And you know, I'm not remotely accusing anybody on this call of doing that, right? I, absolutely 100% not. But we do see people saying, aha, because of Ukraine, we should do more renewables. We should do more heat pumps. We should do more, um, more nuclear. We should do more green hydrogen. We should do, and, and I really object to that because Ukraine, we need to be doing things that can change the, you know, the calculus between now and next Christmas or at worst, in three years. At worst, we'll use a lot of coal this Christmas, but within three years, we want to get rid of that again, right? So we do see bandwagoning or whatever you call it, which I really uh, object to. The broader point about whether people are prepared to sacrifice, I suppose my ingoing assumption is that things will go a lot faster if, you, if there's no sacrifice involved. So for instance, on electrification of transport, I just think that charging will be as ubiquitous as Wi-Fi. And at that point, there's no sacrifice to have to plug in a car or, or pull in somewhere where there's, you know, contactless charging or whatever. And that's the way to get the switch done. It's not by saying, well, we've got this car which is worse than an internal combustion car, but we'd like you to use it because of the climate or it's more expensive. I think what we overwhelmingly need to be seeing is cheaper, better solutions. And this is really important. You know, you have all these people running around talking about just transition. And, you know, justice involves including communities, indigenous communities, vulnerable communities, and so on. But justice also means cheap energy for vulnerable people, for excluded people, for people who are less wealthy. They've got to have cheap energy. And so, you know, we can all run around talking about carbon prices. They sound marvelous to you know, uh, all of the Oxbridge-educated ec economist crowd, right? But, and we laugh at people like Tony Abbott or um, Harper in, in Canada who, who are so against carbon prices, but, you know, we will not successfully and in a just way pursue this transition just by increasing the cost of bad stuff. Maybe it should be more expensive, but if we just do that, if we just block pipelines, if we just make it impossible to invest in fossil then we are inflationarily driving up the cost of energy. It won't be the people on this call that suffer. It'll be the poor and the vulnerable and the developing world that suffers. So we've got to really double down on security now that we see what, what that means in the situation in Ukraine and also the cheapness of the solutions. And this is another area where, you know, we could talk about whether hydrogen will ever really be able to provide cheap solutions for a lot of the use cases on the ladder. And I suspect, Chris, you and I might disagree about that. But I, I think that um, there are some really difficult questions for the hydrogen uh, community to answer about that. 
Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with the point. And by the way, you know, having worked at World Bank, I think developing country point on the energy transition is so right on the money. We don't talk about it nearly enough. And frankly, it is the developing world where actually energy is the most expensive, which is perverse, where it's the most expensive. And yet they're the people less at least able to afford it. But the way you framed it, I thought was the right way, which is it's not just cheap. It's also better because you said cheap and better. You know, and I think that is an important point. Right. I mean, you know. If electric lighting, for example, in a rural electrification strategy is a better quality light product, more consistent, more reliable, more dependable, but it costs more than using a gas lamp or using um, a wax candle, if it's delivering a better service to get better education and better opportunities, that's, that is ultimately going to be what will encourage people to make that move and make that transition. And I think that's the... That is the point. I think you hit the nail on the head. If we can show that the different technologies, whether that is heat pump or battery electric vehicle or hydrogen, whatever, if we can show that they are in some way better, not simply your cost function, but they are better or they make life easier, we will find the whole transition easier. New phones, for example, I've got my iPhone right now. I'm sure many of you have a smartphone, are definitely not cheaper than the Nokia 3310 that I started with, or in fact, probably other people started with even older ones. Not cheaper, but it certainly does a lot more and is a lot better as a product, and people will pay for that because of the value that it brings. So I, I'm, in that sense, I'm very aligned with you, and I think it's kind of on companies to prove that it adds value, not just cost. Yeah, and, and I think just a final point, I think we have to be really clear-sighted about this because in many use cases, not just the hydrogen ladder use cases that I've listed there, but across the economy, agriculture and, and, uh, you know, or, or right across the economy in every, in every aspect that has to change for us to achieve net zero. There are a lot of places where we can be cheaper, better, more resilient, and it becomes a sort of no brainer. There's a, it's a no loss, a no, no regrets option. But we've got to be clear sighted because there are others where it will cost more. Aviation, we're not going to have probably ever possible. So maybe in five decades it will change, but we're not going to get uh, uh, the ability to fly to Vilnius for a stag night for 20 quid on a clean flight, right? And we just need to be very honest with ourselves about some of those use cases. And sadly, some of those are very, you know, some of those are on the ladder, you know, things like fertilizer and, uh, and so on where, you know, it may just be, or steel might be an example where we just have to take it on the chin and admit that dirty steel is cheap, but we can't keep doing it. And we're just going to have to do something a bit more expensive. But then we've got to think about the distributional effects of doing that right? and make sure that it's that it's not, that it, some of that has to be funded, for instance, through taxation, rather than putting all the burden onto and creating a very regressive economic system as a result. Well, Michael, I'm disappointed to hear that my flight to Vilnius is not going to be a clean flight, but uh, you know we'll have to we'll have to deal with it. You've been very generous with your time, Andrew, Michael. Andrew, Andrew, you can have a clean flight to Vilnius. You're just going to have to pay more. Well, you've been very generous with your time, Michael. It was a pleasure speaking with you. I understand you have a uh, relatively more important engagement to run off to, uh, but thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed the conversation. Okay, thanks very much, guys. Thanks very much. This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Bayotech. Bayogas, Bayotech's gas-as-a-service option, provides customers with low-cost hydrogen on demand. Get dependable access to as much hydrogen as you require when you need it. Bayotech produces the hydrogen locally and distributes it via high-pressure transport trailers. Avoiding long transportation distances saves money while minimizing emissions. You pay for the fuel by the kilogram, avoiding high infrastructure costs. 
Biotech makes hydrogen easy. Visit biotech.us today to get low-cost, low-carbon hydrogen delivered on demand. All right, guys. As usual, covered a lot of ground. As uh, Chris mentioned at the top of the episode, this is a little bit of a different style, a different uh, kind of interview where we've got a little bit more of a potential skeptic of hydrogen as our guest. So uh, I think, Patrick, why don't we start with you? What were your uh, big takeaways, uh, highlights? What, what should we make of this? Uh, well, even even if you, you view it as a, a more skeptical take, I think... Uh, the first piece of this, and, and maybe in the latter discussion it emerged, um, there will be a very, very significant need and market that will have to be addressed that will require hydrogen. Um, Michael's obviously got areas where he's, you know, more positive and less positive, as, as is the nature of the ladder that he's uh, he's worked on with folks. But, um, you know, I, and I think, you know, one of the points that I had as well, you know, region by region, some of this changes, the shape of this, the, the use kind of profile changes a little bit. Um but overall, it's a take that should be considered seriously. It's it's one that that you know I know it has had a, an awful lot of attention, and and frankly, for folks working in the space, you know, this is a a little bit of a, a case of you know if if you think this take is wrong, you now know the 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 kind of performance criteria or the competition that you um you have to you know kind of address specific use cases, right? So it's. It's either do better, be better, be competitive, and and maybe it shows some of the challenges that lie lie ahead in in specific end use cases. I don't know, Chris. Maybe if you've got any uh, particular takes as well. Well, look, I mean, I think what Michael's tried to do, and I think it's you know it's been a good it's a good way of sort of starting the sort of debate off in some ways is he's tried to say that hydrogen's flexibility creates a problem for policymakers and investors because it's not clear to understand where the best place is to use hydrogen. And so what he's tried to do is create a framework um, through a very simple uh, image that is quite powerful and helps people to engage with it. And in that sense, you know, that they have succeeded, right? It is a very simplistic way that captures a lot of people's imagination to think about how you might use hydrogen. The, the challenge, of course, that I then have with that is that implicit in the idea that there is a prioritization for hydrogen, that there is a ladder is also implicit that other technologies can meet those other decarbonization goals. And we made the comment in the episode that you don't have ladders for electrification really in the same way or ladders for bioenergy or other forms of um, zero carbon or, uh, if you like, decarbonization solutions. And that in itself is a problem. So as you go through the episode and listen to it, the thing that suddenly jumps out to me a lot is there are some quite big assumptions that Michael makes around what electrification can do and will be able to do and critically the time frame in which it will be able to do it. And I think that's the bit that often is missed in the ladder is if you accept as a premise that solid state batteries will develop as fast as Michael believes they they will and they will perform as well as they will, then you can make quite a number of leaps in terms of the transportation side of things where Michael is very skeptical around the role of hydrogen. You know, if, if solid state really is as good and can be deployed as quickly as he says, you can understand why on some applications he's very skeptical. Um, although, as we pointed out again at the beginning, for long distance trucks, even there with the ladder, they still actually score hydrogen reasonably highly. Um, you know, and then I guess the other bit, which is sometimes missing in this also, is that Michael is 
you know, very technically knowledgeable guy and obviously talks to a lot of people in the space, but he also comes at a little bit from a 30,000 foot view. And so we toyed with this through the episode, but um, what might make sense at a very macro level doesn't necessarily translate into the micro. And Patrick, you were touching on this by saying different geographies will have different dynamics that will drive them. But even actually going that step down, different locations, different customers will have quite different profiles, different planning regulations and authorities will allow for different things. Um, it's not as simple to say, well, electrification is the easiest answer from a technical perspective. So that must be the only one. There can be a slew of reasons why that actually is really challenging to deliver locally. Um, and, and I think, you know, there has been some nod to that in some of his commentary, but I think that's again, kind of the the challenge of the ladder. And I don't begrudge that because the ladder can't answer everything. It's meant to provoke discussion around certain principles and it does that very effectively, um, but it has its limitations. And I think the episode's good at, you know, helping to pull out a number of those particular aspects. Um, Andrew, I wanted to flip a question to you on the charging side, because on several occasions, Michael made the point with regards to transport that, you know, his view is that actually with solid state batteries, you're going to get much longer ranges. The charging is going to pick up reasonably quickly. You know, that, you know, in Europe, drivers have to stop any, every couple of hours anyway. A lot of the journeys are quite short. And to use one of his phrases, a couple of tons extra doesn't really make that much of a difference. Now I'm paraphrasing slightly, but, you know, his argument was it wasn't a big deal. You spend quite a lot of time looking at the EV market and looking at the transport market. What's your kind of view on that? Do you think he's that there is merit, a lot more merit there than maybe we would give credit to? How, how do you view it? Yeah, so I think it's a good question. I would say that my my days of looking at high, uh, at charging infrastructure are probably far enough behind me that I wouldn't say that I, I have a very good uh, view of it uh, today in terms of where it's progressed in the last three years or so. But let me let me put it this way: as of a, a year or two ago, when we were looking at, at not Bayotech, but at my previous role, when we were looking at high speed fast charging infrastructure, even for just personal passenger vehicles, there's significant challenges to deploying uh, sufficient charging infrastructure just around, you know, we're talking about 400 kilowatt chargers, you know, that even that was a challenge, right? And first of all, there are not a lot of uh, cars out there that can actually work with that kind of, uh, not a lot of batteries out there today in production and in uh, production scale vehicles for personal passenger use that can take that kind of charge. Uh, but even more so, the upgrades to distribution infrastructure and connection infrastructure at the site of charging are significant in terms of cost and, and operational uh, complexity. So my point and what I'm getting at here is that Michael very easily and I think a little bit too casually dismissed the idea that you know at some point we were talking about the kind of charging infrastructure needed for heavy duty transport, Chris, as you point to. And he said, well, it's easy. You just deploy a series, you know, a network of megawatt chargers throughout the UK. It's not that easy. Um, and I don't think, I also don't think it's true that fleet operators and trucking companies are going to look at an extra couple of tons on their vehicles as a negligible addition to the load. Right. So, I would say that from my, you know, from my knowledge of the charging world, it's not just, you know, it's not that easy to make that kind of investment and make that kind of infrastructure readily available uh, across the industry. So I would think that's not going to play out in the way that he he characterized it. So I don't know if you would agree with that, but 
Patrick, I, I, I assume you've looked at this as well. Well, I'll, I'll pitch it over to both of you. Do you guys feel the same about that? Is that your understanding, and, and particularly in the UK market, for instance, Chris? Well, I can I can come on to that, but I mean, I think it would just be interesting given that RMI did a lot of work on the transport side, Patrick. I mean, you know, I, I think it's probably fair to say that RMI probably was in the more pure electrification camp, if you'd asked them, for sort of four years ago. And obviously, RMI is at the quite cutting edge in terms of talking to different companies, different technologies, looking at where everything is and that kind of technology deployment curve. You know, the thesis that with solid state, you can move heavy, good vehicles. what's the view within RMI on that, or at least kind of from the exposure that you've had to different parts of the industry, how do people look at it? I I don't think I can speak uh, fully to the the take of our our mobility and our trucking team, especially Um, what I, what I can reflect and, you know, like I'm sure there's some, some recent reports on on these points um, that they've released. But when I looked at this, certainly a little while back, you know, yeah, certainly you can say lighter goods, uh, vehicles and trucks, you know, yes, the, those can move um, to kind of a battery electric stream. And he's even written in various reports around sort of, you know, saying uh, the, the level of uh, new renewables that we would need in Europe to decarbonize um, to, to, to produce hydrogen at the scale that's often envisaged would require sort of a few like almost a replica of the current European grid, so several hundred gigawatts of new renewables. Well, actually, most figures for large scale electrification and a huge move away from fuels and transport and heat will require us to effectively triple or quadruple, if not more, most of our grids and to make most of them renewable. So I just wonder what was your sort of collective takes, Patrick and Andrew, on that sort of supply side. And I know we didn't touch on it for so long, but I just think that's a big part of all of this as well, right? Because if you think you've got excess renewables, then, you know, arguably you're less concerned with how you use them. And if you think renewables are going to be really short supply and are going to be short supply for a long time, renewable gases, renewable power, then maybe you do conserve them more. What do you think? I, I mean, I think that's probably the, I think that's the right way to look at it, right? And I, I do think that's why there there needs to be, even within the hydrogen sector, the flexibility to, to pursue different pathways, right? I, I think blue hydrogen, as it were, natural gas plus CCS, and even pathways using renewable natural gas. These are these are options that are available to supplement renewable energy transitions on the, into the grid, right? So I, I think that's the right way to look at it. And we should be looking at the different options. And it does rely on consumer behavior and what they're willing to pay at the pump, so to speak, right? So some production pathways offer cleaner hydrogen at a much, much increased price point, right? So there is a a question around these different pathways and how we can make hydrogen as clean as possible at the lowest cost possible for for the end user, right? So there's a calibration around around consumer uh, behavior. I assume you guys would agree with that, but I don't know, Patrick. I kind of jumped in before you had a chance, so... Um. To, to the question around grid deployment points, um, I'd, I'd ask the question back, what's our constraint? Like, wh- are we not getting levels of deployment of renewables because the rate of change in grid systems is, is, is not sufficient, right? Or is it because we are materially constrained or production volume constrained or whatnot? Because, you know, you know, look, there's obviously a decarbonization of grid versus decarbonization of alternative uh, pathways, right? Like, like there's, there's a, you know, a clear carbon calculus you can do. But 
you know, what is the, um, the, the deployment quandary here, right? Um, that's, that's the first question. Because if you decide to prioritize something that isn't changing at a sufficient rate to the detriment of other things that could transition quickly, you're making a maybe not great judgment. Obviously, when there's a direct trade-off, that's a, that's a far more immediate kind of question concern. But, but I think what we will see a little bit more is that the number of projects that will be grid tied in a heavy, heavy sort of way is probably a little bit lower once they're, they're very large scale projects. And as the grid kind of makes its own transformation, you might have, have greater degrees of integration. That, that's, that could be one pathway. As to whether, as to whether this is a, going to be truly consumer driven, to the point here, if you're a very, very large consumer, right? So let's not talk about trucks or, you know, kind of um, forklifts, maybe. You you probably can be justifying it through the volume of purchase, but, you know, very, very large facilities with very, very large renewable deployment resources. Uh, are those additional? I think I think most of those projects you could argue are right now. But to the point, you know, and, and this is, I think, coming all the way back to the beginning, I think the question is the ramp rate, right? Are, like, are we going to see a demand side market for hydrogen now? Um, and particularly, obviously, green hydrogen. That is going to be tens upon tens or hundreds of millions of metric tons and, and will suddenly appear. And therefore, we're going to have deployment uh, challenges in that pathway. If, if that's the case, then, you know, this... Um, linked ramp of blue hydrogen, uh, kind of new blue hydrogen uh, production pathways, you know, starts to gain greater credibility just so that we can start to make a transition. But, you know, there's always a, a question here around asset life, right? You're going to commit to a 25-year project, 25-year uh, production profile, right? So that's that's in your system. It's locked in. And you're now, once again, tied to your natural gas price potential risk, right? So, I think there's a few conversations around this, but but I think you know the trade-off between grid versus um, versus direct hydrogen production. I think I think let's let's find out what our deployment constraints are before we start saying uh, one over the other without without views to what what that actually means. In some ways, one of the pieces that actually I think me and Michael do agree on. We kind of came to it at the end was you know a comment that Michael made that actually aligns with what I said when you guys very kindly had. Uh, interview me uh, at the end of last year which is that it's not it's really about trying to find more cost efficient better solutions ultimately for the end customer i mean this is the this is the crux at the heart of the net zero challenge is how do we provide for customers a solution that still meets most of the requirements they have or ideally even helps them to provide services in a different better way than what they can currently do and to do so at a rate that's economic either because the new service allows them to charge a premium to offset a fuel cost premium or you know actually a path to more uh, financial security and stability through a fixed price as opposed to a variable price whatever that might be i, I think that's kind of always a challenge and uh, you know for my two senses, we're sort of probably needing to wrap this up, I guess. Where Michael comes at this in a very helpful way, I think, to the discussion is to sort of prompt and ask the question, if you were able to develop all the technologies that people say they can do and deploy them at scale, and we were able to operate in a market where we didn't have all these policy constraints, there wasn't all these NIMBYs saying, not in my backyard, and if the financial markets were kind of actually a bit more willing to go for these things, what could you do instead? How would you actually look at these markets? And I think in that framing, the ladder um, ladder's quite limited role for hydrogen makes, you know, you can at least follow the logic. You know, you might not agree with it, but you can understand why based on the assumptions and worldview that he brings to the table that 
that is why he's come to those conclusions. And I think it's really important for the debate too, because I think sometimes it's too easy for the industry to just sit on its laurels and, you know, assume that it can do anything, you know. Um, Michael describes hydrogen as uh, the Heineken, if you like, of um, of the industry, right? That was his his ta- his tagline, right? It refreshes the parts that can't be electrified, right? You know, I- I'm not entirely sure that that's sort of the analogy I'd probably go for, right? I mean, you know, in some senses, the irony is that actually Heineken is meant to be kind of a bit of a session beer, right? It's not meant to be something that you drink on special occasions necessarily, and it's not meant to be something that you only occasionally break out. The irony of Heineken is that it is everywhere, and that actually you you drink it quite often and quite a bit. I mean, I don't because I don't really like Heineken. But, you know, the irony of all these things is that I think we are going to use hydrogen more than Michael realizes and than many people realize. And probably for things that maybe when we step back, we go, well, isn't there a more efficient way of using this? And the answer probably will be yes. But as we've said on the show before, there are so many forms of energy usage that we do today that are not efficient, that don't necessarily make sense from a 30,000 foot view, yet we still use them because they still add value to people. Um, And because ultimately within the energy system we're in, there are so many different competing elements that drive choice and why customers use products in a certain way that there is no simple answer or simple formula for showing you that. So I I personally found it a really interesting conversation. I think it will provoke a lot of debate. Um, I was actually really glad also that Michael came on. I know it's sometimes difficult to come on a show where we're quite avowedly pro-hydrogen. So I, I have to give him credit for that too. I thought that was very cool. Agreed. And I thought it was an excellent conversation. I'd be very interested to see the listener feedback this time around because I think there are some really excellent questions and some excellent discussion points there. I also would note that I think this is the second time in the last 12 months that we've uh, ragged on Heineken on this show. So I think we can safely assume we won't be getting a call from them for sponsorship in the near future, but hopefully they're still open to it. But I think we'll leave it there, guys. Good conversation, interesting, interesting points of debate, uh, and uh, we'll bring them up, I'm sure, again next time on the show. And that does it for us here today and everything about hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Michael Liebreich, chairman and CEO of Liebreich Associates, for speaking with us on the show today. And thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.